Well, good morning. My name is Brad Cheney. I am the senior pastor here at All Saints. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, a very uh, kind and warm good morning to you. If there is any way that we can pray for you or serve you, we would be delighted to get that opportunity. And you can let us know by filling out one of the cards and uh, handing it to me or to Brian at the back door of the church or, or putting it in the offering plate. You may have noticed that we've got a couple of new speakers back there. This is an a, experimental test to see if, uh, especially for the second service, if we can make these not as loud and, um, and still project to the, to the back wall. So all of the, the cords and stuff are, uh, are not in their permanent place. Next Sunday, we're going to have, I think, an exquisite design here in the sanctuary as Karen Woods has um, made up some beautiful banners for our, the season of Lent and particularly the Beatitudes that we will be partially covering. The so-called seven deadly sins actually began not as seven, but as eight. They were originally eight vices that were, were plaguing the, the Christian monastic community in the deserts of Egypt in the uh, 5th century. About 100 years later, one of the history's most influential popes, Gregory the Great, takes this monastic list and he pairs it down to the famous seven, the seven being pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. What I plan to do in this new sermon series as we head through Lent is to match each one of these sins with an accompanying beatitude. Today is pride versus poverty of spirit. Next week is envy versus blessed are those who mourn. Um, how does mourning and envy relate? Well, you'll have to come back and, and, and find out. Some of the pairings, admittedly, uh, work better than others. This week's works really well, and, and next week may be a bit of a stretch. But I think that there is a way we can look at the, the seven deadly sins, or seven capital vices, as they are uh, called, and do it with a great deal of hope and expectation that, um, that God will use it as a spiritual catalyst for us, especially when we counterpoint it with the Beatitude, and, and especially because we'll be able to see the excellence of Jesus Christ and how he is the, the full embodiment of, of each of the Beatitudes. Proverbs 11.2, an assorted Proverbs that follow, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, which are the lamp of the wicked, they produce sin. And now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure this has happened to you. It's happened frequently to me. You find yourself in a classroom environment or at a large group social setting, a dinner party or, or something like that. And everybody else in the class or at the party seems to be so smart and so witty and well-read. And they're asking these brilliant and insightful questions or they have the funniest stories to tell. And you, on the other hand, feel like a complete ignoramus. You feel so out of place, so small and inept. And as a result of the knots that you have tied yourself up into, you're not able to hear a word that the professor is speaking or derive a single moment of pleasure from, from the party because you feel so uncomfortable in your own skin. Well, you guessed it. That, that is pride. We tend to associate pride in terms of having an elevated view of ourselves, but there is a very common type of pride that that springs out of an inferiority complex. Pride can fixate on our superiority or it can fixate on our inadequacies, but pride at the very end of the day is going to fixate excessively on me. Pride is, at its core, excessive self-consciousness, which can manifest it Uh, manifest through self-love or it can manifest through self-hate but it's always self-absorption C.S. Lewis of Mere Christianity he said that you know all of the other sins unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness all of those are mere flea bites he called them in comparison to, to this one for it was through pride that the devil became the devil it, it was through pride that our, our first parents fell in the garden, wanting to be at the center of the garden, so to speak, elevating themselves above God. Pride is considered the root vice from which the entire tree grows. What if you walk in this morning and you already know yourself to be a prideful person? Is there any benefit that comes to mind in in discovering uh, how much uh, how really prideful you are if you come in admitting that that you already have that problem good (laughs) that's that's a sign of spiritual health what i would press you to consider is is why why are you what are what's the What's fueling that cancer and making that spiritual cancer spread through your life? Let's say that you want to get the best grades in class. Well, why is that? Why is it that you need to be the life of the party or be witty and have lots of contributions to make? Why is it that you want to... outperform your your colleagues well one of the reasons is is because pride is competitive by nature lewis he goes on to say 
that pride gets no pleasure out of having something. It only gets its pleasure from having more of that something than the next person. So people, we commonly talk about being proud. People are proud of being rich, proud of being clever or good-looking, but they are not. They're proud of being richer, cleverer, and better-looking than others. Pride is the, the E-R at the, at the end of the word. And so I would maybe, if nothing more, in this sermon, you'll become better aware of the little algorithm that is constantly running in the back of your prideful mind that is performing these like computations, these, these comparison assessments pretty much all the time. Some of you listen to Garrison Keillor's A Prairie Home Companion on NPR. He's been doing that for decades. And he's, he is a Christian. He's, he's, a, he's an Episcopalian Christian. And some of his theology wouldn't, certainly wouldn't match up with mine or, or perhaps yours. But he had this very telling admission. He said, I am desperate to win all the little merit badges and trinkets of my profession. I, in, I, I want to be recognized as a success. I desperately crave the adulation of others. I find inside my heart a lust for recognition. Are you desperate to win all the little merit badges? Like, did you grow up in Cub Scouts and you had your, your, uh, your bear and wolf patch sewn to your, I did, <laughs> or Girl Scouts, and you never, could that, could that be what is, what drives you today? I mean, our desire to be recognized and, and praised and approved is not all bad. I mean, think of your, when your son hits the, the home run in Game 7 of the Little League World Series. I mean, it's right for a parent to celebrate that fact. When your daughter wins the gymnastics meet, it's right to celebrate that. It's, it's not bad necessarily for us to want to receive our parents' or other authority figures' praise. You know that the studies indicate that we've probably way overcompensated now and that our, our kids are <clears throat> pretty darn narcissistic because we have heaped on them praise after praise after praise. Um, but we should want to hear the praise of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. So what is the, the subtle difference between a healthy desire and an, an inordinate desire? How do we... Johann Sebastian Bach, I mean, one of the greatest composers ever to live, known for the, the amazing cantatas and the amazing organ music. You know that Bach's music was played as prelude during before worship services in the Lutheran church. Bach is, was no doubt praised by so many people for, for his uh, mastery of, of, um, of music. But he's also known for writing on every manuscript that he ever wrote, Soli Deo Gloria. And I think there, therein lies the subtle difference. As opposed to saying, look what I've accomplished. I, I am somebody now. We, we say, what do I have that I haven't been given? What have I accomplished that I haven't been 
enabled to achieve. I mean, everything that I have, be it my athletic prowess or my, my indomitable work ethic, sola deo glory, glory to God alone. Let's go back to the Proverbs here. They speak about the dangers of pride. Let's see. The most famous is Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Why is pride so dangerous? I think, I mean, you could come up with many of the answers that I came up with. Uh, because a, a proud person insulates themselves from external criticism. And therefore, they can't learn from their mistakes because they are, they are not receptive to outside intervention or correction. I can only imagine that the, the, the doctors in our church have had this happen about once a week for the whole time that they've been in their profession. Somebody walks in your clinic and they don't need you to diagnose them because they have it. They've researched it so well on the internet and they know exactly what's wrong with them. And all they really need you to do is just pick up the prescription pad and, and fill it out because they've got the diagnosis and they know exactly the treatment. It's because they've spent 20 minutes on the internet. I mean, I, I can imagine doctors just love the internet for that reason because it makes it so much easier to to treat fellow pseudo-doctors. Right? And it doesn't matter. The, the fact that you've spent the, what, an entire decade of your life studying the human anatomy and that you have treated possibly thousands of patients with similar symptoms. Nevertheless, you are not the expert. The, <laughs> the patient is. It, what I notice about pride is it makes us the authority. It is deeply resistant to any external f authority. Maybe it's because you're just afraid of getting, I don't know, abused or, or walked over like a doormat, but you set yourself up as the authority. I get, I've had this happen to me quite a bit in my uh, 12, going on 12 years of pastoring. Now, I've been trying to study the Bible for pretty rigorously for the last two decades. And I will have somebody come in with, and try to justify on biblical grounds very questionable um, ethical behavior or judgment that they that they're engaging in. And if I pull out the scriptures and say, you know, here, 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 and here, the Bible just does not say that. You, you know what they tell me. They say, well, that's just your opinion. Um, and, and it's the way they say that's your opinion. You say it in such a way that the other person, you, you think that they're the village idiot. It's amazing how difficult life is to, to be surrounded by so many nincompoops. And that is the spirit of the prideful person. They're so frustrated by everybody everybody else who can't understand um, my, the, my complex emotional and spiritual and situational issues. Um, and everybody else who doesn't do it the, the right way. Pride is so destructive because our, our assessment of this situation is set up as... as usually is unquestionably right 
And then we'll surround ourselves with yes men or women who agree with us. And that, that is how pride colors and distorts everything that we see. Um, okay, I've got a couple of a bit random diagnostic questions. I have noticed in my home and in my life over the last, I don't know, month, I've been in a lot of arguments. I, the root of all evil is the need to be right. <laughs> and I have, I have just demanded, especially those of you who are parents of teenage children, you know, I just have demanded that, that I, I, I'm right. Because I am right when I'm arguing with them. I mean, why would a, a, a 13, 14, or 15-year-old, how could they be right? Um, I mean, how how often do you find yourself needing, asserting your assessment is right? How much, another diagnostic question, how much do you dislike it or how upset do you get when other people snub you or when your contributions and efforts go unnoticed? How, yeah, how bothered do you become when when you don't get noticed? Uh, who are the people that you can't stand? If you're a pretty strong personality, you're pretty tough, you're a tough guy, tough gal. It's going to be very tempting for you to look down your nose at anyone who is not tough and persevering. Uh, we tend to look down at others who don't have our gifts and strengths. If you were to make an assessment of the people who get on, on, um, on your nerves the most, more than likely they, they don't possess your gifts and strengths. And then the very last diagnostic question or issue I have is the, the most diabolical form of pride, the, the real black mark comes when you so look down on others that you say, I don't care what they think about me. As if, like, your opinion doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't matter what other people think. I mean, how many times have you heard that? Um, I don't, I don't care what other people think. All I need to do is live up to my own ideals and, and my own standards. There's a fascinating passage in the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where at first glance it seems as if the Apostle Paul is saying that very thing. He's receiving a great deal of criticism from this church in Corinth and it seems like he's, he's saying, I don't care what you say. 1 Corinthians 4, 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. So it's kind of like you can, you can just stuff it because I don't care. But the difference being the, his very next statement is, I don't, I don't care if you judge me. I don't even judge myself. I don't, I don't even care what I say about me. There's almost a sense that he is, he is letting go of even his own self-judgments to go on and say, I entrust myself to the Lord who, who judges me. And he sets up the Lord's judgment or word about me as the determinative, definitive word that matters. So the Pulitzer Prize winning and sometimes irreverent Christian author Anne Lamont 
Lamott um, recounts a ritual that she does before she begins to write one of her stories. She imagines all the little voices in her head, the, the positive and the negative. They're constantly reciting either their high expectations or their dev- devastating criticisms of her writing. She imagines them as little mice, and she drops them one by one by their tails into this big glass jar and screws the lid on tight. She sees these little mice pawing at the sides of the glass, squeaking away furiously. And yet, because they're, they're in mason jars and sealed, she cannot hear them. And then she takes her jars, and she sets them off to, to the side. And she says, that's the only way, then, I can hear the, the real story. I, that's the only way I can hear my characters, truly, and begin to write the story, is when... I've, I've silenced all of those other voices, including my own. You know, t- to the extent that you are hearing the voice of God spoken, speaking to you in the gospel and, and operating out of that as the, the determinative voice of your life, um, probably is a, is a major indicator of how much joy you feel today. Mark is a 32-year-old man married with a toddler and recently laid off. He has had a tendency to wallow in self-reproach ever since his childhood. He is now unemployed, and so that self-reproach has gotten um, way worse. He's mired in loops of self-condemning thoughts that are endlessly rehearsing and bemoaning his faults, both real and imaginary. Sarah is a 29-year-old single woman who is 5 foot 6, weighs only 103 pounds and feels still feels fat. She is preoccupied by her looks, her calorie intake, the her extreme exercise regimen and she she feels deeply insecure. That could be you and that that could be me, that could be a Christian friend. What they, what they need to know is that you know, your, your self-assessments are usually a whole lot of bunk. I mean, when Moses stands before God on Mount Sinai and says that I'm a terrible public speaker and I'm not a good leader of, of people, like his assessment, God calls his assessment bunk. <laughs> and what matters is that you are mine, my chosen Mouthpiece and instrument. Um, and, and if you're if you're a Christian, as I assume like the vast majority of us are here, like when was the last time you you drank, drank deeply from those those waters of the gospel uh, of God's determinative word for you that I loved you before the foundations of the earth? Did you know that I made you exactly? the way that I wanted to make you. I've known um, how much you would struggle with self-image, and yet I stamp on that image, Imago Dei, you bear my image. I know uh, each hair on your head and each unseemly spot on your body, and, uh, and you are mine. One of the greatest glories of Christianity is that before God, ever asks you to love him or to love 
one another, Jesus Christ steps down off of his throne in heaven. If ever there was somebody who had glory that could have been kept for himself, I mean, we see the picture of it in the transfiguration. And yet he steps down from his throne in heaven to to pay the penalty of your sins, to suffer and to die in your place. And he does that because he thinks you're a bum, right? He thinks you're ugly and unattractive because he thinks that you are my dearly loved child. What I've, one of the things I've heard is that pride, the, the opposite of pride is, is self-forgetfulness. Where, think of those, those social environments, those settings, where you are the least conscious of yourself. Isn't it in those places where you feel the most loved? <laughs> like, isn't love, the security of love, the one thing that actually helps get you out of your own tangled knots <laughs> and, and able to look at, at other people and you're just not thinking about yourself? You're not a wallflower and, and you're not a life, the life of the party and it all begins with Trinitarian love, the love of the Father for the Son, the love of the Son for the Father, the love of the Spirit for the Father and the Son. That love is poured down in, onto earth, into our lives. And it's only then that you, that, that you have to or begin to then love God and love other people because when you feel loved, you're no longer stuck in the mirror, navel-gazing, but you're able to look outside. Matthew 5, 1 through 3. I, I do want to talk, I will talk, I promise to talk a great deal more about the Beatitudes in uh, maybe next week's sermon. But, you know, Jesus says that our God is a God who blesses the impoverished spirit. And maybe in Luke's translation of the Beatitudes, he just says, blessed are the poor. He doesn't even say the poor in spirit. Jesus probably he did have a socioeconomic class in mind. The people in first century Israel who, you, you didn't think that those were the, the people who enjoyed the favor of God. The poor, the outcasts, the, the younger brother who would have been, ha, had no inheritance, the, the woman, the barren woman who nobody wanted, the, the poor and the powerless. So he does have a class of people in mind. But then, because Matthew says not only blessed are the poor, but blessed are the poor in spirit, he, do, he also has, I think, a virtue in mind. Rarely do we get this virtue by undertaking frontal assault on pride. Like if you try to just, I'm going to knuckle down and, and be more humble, doesn't that just sound weird? <laughs> yeah, I've got to try and be more lowly. That doesn't there's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, said D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Welsh preacher, and that is to contemplate the cross. For when I survey the, the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gains, I mean, what do you consider your richest gains? I count but loss... And what the whole contemplation of the cross thing does, which is supposed to be part of your spiritual activity of Lent, is to pour contempt on all your pride. Nothing else can do it 
except when I see that I am such a hard-headed, prideful sinner that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me. I'm humble to the dust. I, I mean, I don't want those just to be words. I really want that to happen for you. I, I mean, right, metaphor, humbled to the dust. But what if, what if you are truly humbled to the dust in the next six weeks? And the fact that our most merciful Father sent his only Son into the world and laid upon him the sins of his people, saying, Be thou Peter, the denier, on the cross. Be thou Paul, that persecutor, that blasphemer, that cruel oppressor. Be thou David, that adulterer. Be thou, what was the thou for you? What we're going to do through the next, uh, each Sunday of Lent, following the sermon, we're going to observe three to five minutes of silence. I, I haven't figured out how much, but... And I'll give you a few questions to ask, to uh, guide you in your, your meditations. You may want to, here's a suggestion, ask the Holy Spirit <clears throat> to show you what are the sources of your pride, not out of this, this groveling, I hate myself kind of self-absorption, but the way that a young piano student who truly loves to play that instrument and wants to play that instrument to the, the most beautiful capacity of her being, asked her piano instructor, where are my fingers wrong here? <laughs> and what part of the notes am I not seeing? It, that's, what, that's the spirit that you, you go through the seven deadly sins, asking, I, I just, I know that these things are inhibiting my joy and my ability to love. So show me, Lord. You may... Another idea. I mean, you are, you've got a pretty good, you're in middle class America, upper middle class, upper class. You're not part of the socio-economically deprived, but you can be impoverished in spirit. And maybe it's just by the poverty of spirit that you can bring to the Lord today is, is the acknowledgement that my pride is what's bankrupting me. And like you use that acknowledged weakness and fault on your character as a way to enter into the presence of God and say, I think you get that. Number three, you just may want to spend this entire time praising Jesus for his self-humiliation on your behalf. And then you may want to finally just spend the whole time boasting in the cross. That's what Paul says. I don't boast in my accomplishments, but I, I boast in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. What would it mean for you to do that? 